Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, 2020 marks the centennial anniversary of women's right to vote in the United States. And the years leading up have been rife with powerful female-centered cultural moments, from the Me Too movement to an entire slate of qualified female candidates for the Democratic presidential candidacy. Two years ago, looking forward to the 2020 centennial milestone, founders of the organization 2020 Women on Boards announced the group's vision to boost the number of women on corporate boards by 20%. Has it happened, and why does it matter? We're taking a forensic look at the numbers. Later in the show, almost from the beginning, the story of women in hip-hop has been sidelined, diminished, or erased. Now a new book, God Save the Queens, The Essential History of Women in Hip-Hop, is writing the record, telling the story of women's legacy in hip-hop. It's our March selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me in the studio, Mally Giro, co-founder and vice chair of 2020 Women on Boards, a global education and advocacy campaign urging corporations to meet or exceed 20% women directors on their boards by the year, this year, 2020. Hello, Mally. Hi, thanks for having me. Glad to have you. Also with me, Nancy Nager, vice president and president-elect of the Boston Club, an organization invested in elevating women in all areas of the business world. Hello, Nancy. Hi, Callie. So nice to be here. I'm glad to have you. And also with me, Bob River, CEO of Eastern Bank. Welcome, Bob. Thank you. Great to be here. Well, I'm glad to have all of you. And I I wanted to start this way because 10 years ago, Sheryl Sandberg, the COO of Facebook, made a very impactful TED Talk. And the section that stood out to me, which really spoke to where women were in terms of their presence high up in corporations and on boards, was this piece I want to play now. And we'll, we'll talk about it on the other side. So here is Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg during her 2010 TED Talk. A couple of years ago, I was in New York and I was pitching a deal. And I was in one of those fancy New York private equity offices you you can picture. And two hours in, there's kind of needs to be that bio break and everyone stands up. And the partner running the meeting starts looking really embarrassed. And I realize he doesn't know where the women's room is in his office. So I start looking around for moving boxes, figuring they just moved in, but I don't see any. And so I said, so did you just move into this office? And he said, no, we've been here about a year. And I said, are you telling me that I'm the only woman to have pitched a deal in this office in a year? And he looked at me and he said, yeah, or maybe you're the only one who had to go to the bathroom. (laughs) 
So, Mally, that really stayed with me. I kept thinking about that, and I thought she was so brilliant to really give a good, clear example of what it looked like in those spaces. And that was one of the reasons that you were moving toward putting together 2020 Women on Board. Well, it was, and that moment stayed with me, too. And the reason is because in 2012, two years after we started the campaign, Facebook went public without a woman on its board. And we wrote one of our early blogs about Facebook hello, (laughs) time to put a woman on your board. We knew that Mark Zuckerberg was pretty much in control of that company. And we said, put Cheryl on the board because you're comfortable with her. Yes, she's an insider. We don't like to see inside directors, but it makes sense for this company. That's exactly what they did. They put Cheryl Sanford on the board. Now I think there are three women on the Facebook board. And, um, you know, it's, we started the campaign, the, the, our piece went viral, and it really helped us move it forward. When you uh, began 2020 Women on Boards, 2020 looked a long way off. Did, did you think <laughs> then, by the time we get here, we're going to be in a way better position than we are now? We didn't know. Mm-hmm. 2020 Women on Boards actually grew out of the work that the Boston Club was doing. We knew that those numbers were moving so pitifully slowly that my friend and co-founder, Stephanie Sonnabend, and I sort of thought, what could we do to move this forward to make it go faster? Um, we gave ourselves 10 years. We looked at the Fortune 1000, and we thought, boards move slowly. It, they don't turn that over that quickly. And it might take us 10 years to get to 20%. But we, we didn't want to punish companies. We wanted them to feel good about this. So we gave them a good long time to do it. We actually reached the goal of the Fortune 1000 in 2017. And we've expanded now our work to look at the Russell 3000. All right. So moving over to you, Nancy Nager, as uh, Molly said, this grew out of the work that the Boston Club was doing. And you're now well known for a census you take of local companies in particular to see who's on the boards and where are women in corporate leadership. Talk to me about that census. And when you look back from the beginning of doing that to now, the progress. So the census is something that is a, a signature piece of the club. The club is consisting of 700 executive women in in the local area, and our purpose is really to advance women into C-suite positions and into board positions. And so the census really has been, uh, over the last 17, 20 years, whatever it's been, to help to monitor how much progress that we've made. Um, and we have made progress. It's slow. Um, but well, I think what do you it's, mean specifically when you say we've made progress? We've made progress in that we've increased the number of women on corporate boards. And all of our top 100 companies that we have been monitoring um, have now not any zero zeros, meaning that there are women either in the board or in the C-suite. So we started with maybe, I think it was 35, 36 companies who had no women in either and now, just this year, uh, we're very proud to say that we have zero zeros. But one and done is not where we are. Um, we need to continue. We need to advance. We need to place more women on corporate boards. And, and that's really our mission. You know, the, the census is our Hawthorne effect. You know, if mm. you watch something, something will happen. Mm. And something is happening. It's just still slow. 
But there are many other groups out there now who are doing more of the same. And so with, you know, bigger voices out in the community, I think we're making, you know, as, as good progress as, as we can uh, with more and more support, especially from financial institutions. Uh, and that's important, and especially in this country. So in November of last year, when Shirley Leong, who sort of made this a cause celeb for herself uh, writing about this, did a piece. There was one company, Steel Connect, that was a zero, zero. But that changed? That changed, Okay. So now none, and we're on to hopefully a brighter, bigger future. That is correct. All right. So Bob Rivers, CEO of Eastern Bank, the first thing that you did as you began to look at your board um, in terms of diversifying it was actually take another kind of census, which is was of the community. Talk to me about why that was important and why you started there. Well, essentially, we used it to set targets. So we wanted to make sure that our leadership, our board, our senior management really reflected the community. Certainly, it didn't uh, at that time, really still doesn't today, although we've made a lot of progress. And simply what we did is looked at the markets we were in and set up targets. People don't like the word quotas, so I'll use targets, but they were very intentional targets around representation from women, people of color, members of the LGBTQ plus community, and really attacked our board, which is a very big board. Uh, There's 12 directors, and there's also uh, two other groups that are part of our board that make up 150 people. And out of that 150 people back 10 plus years ago, it was uh, 92% white males. Today, uh, we have more than 50% uh, women, people of color, and members of the LGBTQ plus uh, community on that board. We shifted it over that period of time. To Mally's point, it does take some time because of turnover. But we went at it every year through our nomination process relative to those targets, reset, and said, so who are we looking for today? And we always start first with talent. What's the talent that we need? But really what we look for is uh, look for talent, then solve for diversity. And those targets really helped us be really intentional in making sure that the candidate pipeline we had for all of those roles reflected the diversity of our community. So I am impressed by what you've been able to do on your board and and to achieve the diversity that you have and, and the moving forward. But I'm also really impressed by your personal story that you say was instrumental in making you think more broadly about why this was important. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, oftentimes these these issues sit at the more intellectual level, and until they really hit your heart, it's hard to get really vested in them. For me, there's been a number of stories along the way, but with respect to gender equity, it started with my mother. My mother was a valedictorian of her high school class uh, here in the Boston area. The valedictorian always earned a full four-year college scholarship. This is my mom in the late 50s, very poor family. That scholarship meant everything. Without it, there was no going to college. Unfortunately for her, she was the first female valedictorian in her high school. And so instead, they decided to give it to the next highest uh, ranking graduate, a young man, the four-year scholarship instead. Thankfully, my grandmother, her mother, and one of the nuns at the school really uh, were forces of nature, took up my mom's cause, and insisted that they give my mother that four-year scholarship as well, which she received, went on to Boston College, graduated, and was a teacher back in Boston for 30 years. And now compare and contrast that, you say, with what happened to you when you got ready to apply for work at the bank and how you were treated. Oh, it was very different. I got into the banking business at the encouragement of my father. I was going off to study business at Stonehill College and packing bags in the supermarket and really loving it. 
And my father decided, well, you really need a business degree. You should go up and apply to be a teller at the local bank. Well, I really didn't want to do that. So I went up one afternoon after work. I had been working in the stockroom. I'm in jeans. I'm in a dirty T-shirt. I made no attempt whatsoever to clean myself up. And I walked in and I said, well, I'll dutifully go in and I will apply. I will not get the job. And that will be that. And I can go back to packing bags and stocking shelves for the rest of my summer. Well, as it turned out, the manager of that branch, who actually became later the president of that bank, was looking to breed the very small group of men in that organization, which were all at the senior level. So basically, I was hired as a teller so I could be part of this training program. So I got the job, much to my shock. And so did uh, another young man that graduated after me. And other tellers were hired, all women, but we were treated very differently. In the summer, we were taken off the line. We went into the mortgage department, the tax department, finance. We were rotated around the bank while no one else ever left the line. And it was at that moment that I realized that despite the fact I didn't grow up with a silver spoon in my mouth, I had been certainly born on first base. And because as a straight white male, it made me first mindful of the advantages that we have. And certainly that led to the start of my career. Needless to say, not long after, I left that bank. Mm -hmm. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are 2020 Women on Board's Mally Giro, the Boston Club's Nancy Nager, and Eastern Bank's Bob Rivers, you just heard him. We're discussing ongoing efforts to increase women's representation on corporate boards. Um, let me go back to you, Mally, now, because Bob has talked about intentionality. And so I want to talk about the power of intentionality and how much that means when we start talking about making these kinds of, you know, not, not just cultural shifts, but real business shifts sure. where people are, are not understanding why this means anything. Well, I think intentionality is really important. And to Bob's story, which I never heard before, but it's a great one. When we would interview CEOs who had diversified their boards early on in the campaign, it was because they had moms who had significant careers and they also had daughters. And and these were the men that sat there and thought about, you know, the paths that maybe their mothers had taken, the paths that their daughters would take, and really wanted to make change. Today, we see a different intentionality. I think that businesses are truly thinking about diversifying their board. We do see an uptick in the numbers. Breaking news last week was the Goldman Sachs CEO who said, that they would, in 2021, not invest in companies that didn't have at least one diverse board director and with an emphasis on women. And I think that's a new kind of intentionality, that people are really beginning to look at this issue and take it seriously. The other thing that I think that people don't realize is that, you know, you could listen to this and say, well, this is good. We should be doing this. It's the right thing to do. And it is. But it actually pays off. There is a bottom line consideration here, Nancy. Speak to that. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I was just thinking. I think, you know, in terms of what Mally just said, it's so true. The intentionality is changing. And I think there are a lot of corporations now saying, well, I've seen the research. I know that if I have a more diverse board, my bottom line could improve. And this country is, you know, very focused on 
business and making money. So I think that speaks a lot. I know in the early days when we at the Boston Club would go out to visit all of these corporations and talk to CEOs, we had to do a little bit of education around that. They would say, why do we need a woman on our board? We just want a qualified candidate. What's the difference? As and, if women can't be qualified, but continue. Right, right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But I mean, you know, I used to say to them, you know, we have qualified candidates. They just happen to be women. You know, that's not that they're not qualified. There was a lot of conversation, a lot of education, and now it's very different. You know, either everybody knows why they want a woman on their board or they just don't talk about it anymore and they... Mm. They say, okay, and because we're watching. And I didn't mention before in the census, and I think I should mention that, you know, we do this in partnership with Bentley College. Tony Wolfman, uh, Susan Adams, Pat Flynn worked very hard on this. So I want to make sure that they get their due credit. Mm -hmm. Talk about bottom line considerations, Bob, because, you know, people look at you and they say, that's good for him. But, you know, is it going to work for me? Oh, absolutely. Well, um, I mean, certainly the studies bear it out. Our own experience bears it out. Uh, We just posted our third consecutive year record earnings, and that is a direct function of the diversity we have in our leadership team. That was our pursuit for diversity. It wasn't for aesthetics. It wasn't to uh, avoid negative press. It was really to drive a much more robust collective mindset, as we call it, to solve more complex problems in a rapidly changing world. And that has borne out in so many things. We are better informed today about so many issues inside the four walls of the bank, as well as outside the four walls, than we ever were before. Yeah, how can you operate, I just want to ask, as CEO, in a global economy, and, and we really are in a global economy, if you don't have many voices at the table, I don't know how you yeah, operate. I, I don't think you can sustainably operate, yeah, yeah. that's for sure. Okay. I want to go back to why it matters, because I really want to have all of you talk about it. First, let me begin by reading some of the comments that came at the end of Shirley Leong's a piece that she did at the time about Steel Connect being the zero zero. It's changed now, as we said earlier. So here are just a couple comments. Are they doing anything illegal or unethical and hurts anyone? I didn't see anything in the article. And here's another one. One token woman may be more harm than good. Oh, boy. Uh, can you <laughs> now just address that? Because this comes up all the time. I mean, so what? We've talked about bottom line. You would hope that that would make an impression on other people. But, you know, it still needs to be addressed about why this matters in general. It matters a lot. And it matters because companies represent the communities that they work in, and they need to take into consideration their customers and their employees and their stakeholders and their investors. And they need to look at that big picture and look at the population that those people represent. And there are a lot of women within that constituency, and they need to have boards of directors that can address the issues that are really important. 2020 Women on Boards, we have a program. We call it our 2020 Challenge. We identify a company with no women on the board, and we get our tens of thousands of supporters to email the company and tell them why this matters to them. And hundreds of people every month Come out and email companies that don't have women on their boards and let them know, hey, this is not okay. So I think culturally and in terms of the health of our communities and our business communities, 
It's very important. Okay. Let me ask a question, because in California, they've taken it a step further. They have passed a bill which mandates that there should be women on certain boards. I want to just listen to this piece from California State Senator Hannah Beth Jackson. She's co-author of California's 2018 Jackson Bill. She's talking about the lasting impact mandating women on corporate boards has had on the future leadership of companies. Well, what we do find is that when you have women on corporate boards, uh, they tend to find uh, and be interested in bringing women into management positions. Again, uh, when it's an all-male board, there's a real reluctance to look outside, if you will, their comfort zone, the traditional box, uh, for non-male uh, leadership. And when you have women in these positions of power and influence on corporate boards, they tend to be the ones that are willing to look to women for leadership. So what do you think about that, Nancy? Is this a good way to proceed? We should say these are publicly traded companies that this law applies to in California. I think it was a necessary step. And I know that we in the Massachusetts area have been looking at legislation as well and around the country. But sometimes I wonder whether quotas are the right way to go. In this country, as I was talking about before, money talks. And if we have more companies who are not willing to invest in diverse boards, I think that speaks a little bit more strongly to the issue. I not against quotas. It just wouldn't be the first route that I would suggest that we take. So something that Senator Hannah Beth Jackson said, Bob Rivers, is about the sort of how women bring in more women, or for that matter, how people of color will bring in other people of color. So what she's getting at, I believe, are those networks that are quite closed. Yep. And you, you, can't, you can't get outside of them unless somebody different gets in. No question about it. <laughs> and it was one of the reasons why we diversified our board. We could do it more quickly, actually, than our senior management. Uh, and it was a way to develop greater networks, penetration in those networks to attract talent for the leadership of the bank with inside the company. So absolutely that that works. And I think anything that encourages that more quickly is really important. You know, I agree with Nancy. I would, I would much rather have the private sector, for example, do much more self-policing and reinforcement. And we're certainly seeing more of that as time goes on. But the last thing that I want to see is the 2020 boards becomes 2050 on boards because mm. it's going to take us to 2050 to get to gender parity. Mm. Yes. So uh, that's why I submitted. That's not a joke. It's not a joke. No, it's, it's not, not a joke. A, it's not a joke. <laughs> yeah. if, if you look at the path of numbers mm -hmm. at the current rate, that's where it's going. So the, the change is just too glacial. And it's why I submitted written testimony on behalf of several pieces of legislation over the last uh, four to five years supporting the introduction of mandates on representation in boards well, because it's the only way that I can see this happening faster. It's not the place I start, mm -hmm. um, but unfortunately the numbers bear out that something's got to be done more quickly. Can I just oh, jump absolutely. in? So Bob helped us when we passed the resolution in Massachusetts about four years ago, I think. In terms of the California law, 180 companies in California had no women on their boards. And when this bill passed, we knew that there would be 700 additional female directors since 2019, 183 women have been added to those company boards. And so the law is making progress and pushing those companies into doing something that maybe they would have done. 
but you're right. It would have taken until about 2050 to, uh, to see it. I think right. your example is saying that it wasn't going to happen unless there was a push. I think so. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so Massachusetts and the state of New Jersey have filed lookalike California bills. They're in committee. They haven't come out of committee yet. We're waiting to see what happens. And uh, Maryland passed a disclosure law in 2019, which means that companies have to report on their diversity. And, uh, you know, so so states are beginning to take notice. And part of the mm-hmm. problem, too, is that there aren't enough seats that open up fast enough. Mm-hmm. So that even though you might have, you know, the the will and the, and the want, you don't have the seat. Because and of the term limits? Because of the term limits, mm-hmm. because people are on boards older and older now. Older is become younger. Mm. And so people stay on longer and the seats don't turn over. And unless you add a seat, uh, many times there's no way to place someone. So that's, that's part of the problem but as well. Our research, but our yeah. research has showed us that that's what companies are doing. They're not waiting until mm-hmm. a seat opens up. Companies are actually adding. adding seats to mm-hmm. add yeah. women. And that's right. how this progress is happening. Right. And one thing I'd just like to add to the conversation, because it it bears emphasis, is the legislation that I want to see is not just about women. Mm -hmm. It is about people of color. Because when you look at the representation of women of color in particular, but Mm -hmm. people of color generally, that's a whole other different order of lack of representation that needs to be fixed. Absolutely. Well, women of color are only about 3%. 3% nationally. So I'm nationally. surprised it's that high. Yeah, huh? <laughs> if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm here with Mally Giro, Nancy Nager, and Bob Rivers. We're talking about the number of initiatives to increase the women serving on corporate boards. Now, let me talk about something else, because you're talking about adding women. You know, some some companies have taken that step, which seems innovative. But something that people could do now for those seats that are open but rarely do, and maybe this is a network question, there are lots of women who don't have the exact match title that somebody else is sitting on your board, but they have what we know as portfolio skills. They have all the management, they have the corporate responsibility, but they're not let's say, CEO of Eastern Bank. And so the people that make the selection say, oh, well, can't find any. (laughs) Bob, you want to speak to that? (laughs) That that is changing, I'm finding. I mean, certainly in the pursuit of diversity, people aren't as locked into someone who's in the CEO role. There's still a preference for the Mm C-suite, for sure. But that opens up a broader group, albeit still pretty pretty narrow. Uh, but there is flexibility there. Uh, I find, honestly, uh, one of the biggest inhibitors in corporate searches, whether they be for boards or executive management, are uh, the recruiting firms themselves. Mm-hmm. Because the basic model of the recruiting firm, its efficiency defines that they constantly go back to the same database and recycle mm-hmm. the same candidates, mm-hmm. which are always the same people who are generally straight white males. Mm-hmm. And unless you, the companies really push those recruiting firms to be much more intentional and demand a diverse slate left to their own devices, because that's the economics of the model, we're going to keep getting more we got. Nancy Nager, you are not in your head of the Boston Club. (laughs) I run into this issue all the time because, you know, the Boston Club has the corporate board committee. We go out and we talk with companies about placing women on their boards, and they ask for specific specs. And we try to match them up the best we can. But as we know, the titles don't always match. Sometimes, you know, there's wonderful experience, and we try to promote that. So to say, I think this is a skill set. That would be perfect for your board based on your specs. A lot of them are still looking for C-suite 
C-suite and C-suite. Mm-hmm. So if you're not C-suite, they're not interested in looking at it. And when it comes to the search firms, they're much worse. Corporations over time might become a little bit more flexible. Um, we found that to be true. And they'll say over time as well, gee, I didn't realize that I I saw that resume, it looked kind of good. But the recruiters are much more focused on exactly what the client is asking for. And so they're much less willing to be flexible. And here's the other big secret, which I learned from moderating discussions about this, which is that you better not be asking or saying out in the public you'd like to be on a (laughs) corporate board. That is the kiss of death. You're supposed to just be living your life, Mally, and then someone sees you. Yes and no. Because (laughs) What we tell people, what we tell women that are looking for board seats is that they actually do need to talk about this. I think they need to be a little discreet and maybe choose choose who they're going to talk to. But we tell them, work your networks. If you don't tell somebody that you want to sit on a board, who's going to know? So work your networks. Let it be known that this is something you're interested in, what you bring to the table. You know, look for an advisory board seat. If you haven't sat on a board, it's a great place to start, but you have to work your networks and you have to let people know it's that intentionality. All right. Just to put a point on that, at the Boston Club, I mean, I sit on several boards. Most of them came through recommendations of other Boston Club members. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good because it was a t- it was a time where, you know, other people on boards would recommend it, particularly with you people right. of color. And it's like, if I can't get Ann Fudge, I don't want anybody. That's right. That's <laughs> yep. and, that's, and I love you, Ann Fudge. You know? But that's <laughs> you right. Know? And what we were seeing were a small select group of women who were becoming overboarded, just like their male, white, C. CEO compatriots. And and what we're seeing now is a much more broadening of the definition of what makes a qualified director. Um, so it's it's a good thing to see. We're seeing yeah. younger women. We're seeing women with different different experiences, different titles. Mm-hmm. And, the, and this, you know, this is also a matter of pay equity. Yeah. Uh, yes. Because we've done a lot of work. I happen to sit on the uh, Boston Women's Workforce Commission of uh, for the mayor. And we've been really focused on pay equity on what I call sort of a lateral level and making sure the comparable positions. And I think in most companies, those gaps are relatively fewer, to be frank. Uh, certainly in our company and in many others that really pay attention to this, that's not where the problem lies. The problem is really more vertical. Mm. And, you know, Citibank highlighted this recently. It has been tracking it the last two years. You know, they looked at horizontally and said, well, People are paid pretty much 99 to 100% relative men, women, so forth. But if they added up all the compensation of women, mm. all the compensation of men, what they found was the men were, first study, 29% higher, second, a little better, 27% higher. And that's a direct function of what we're talking about here. To the extent that we don't have diversified boards, we're not tapping into the networks, we're not intentional about diversifying the senior leadership and having more women CEOs, that pay equity gap is never going to go away. I would agree with you. And I shout out to Salesforce, the company that did the hard work of doing the audit on those salaries, those comparative salaries, and and made them equitable. So now let's go back to the numbers. Now, you want it 20% by 2020, Mally. We're here at 20. 
2020. Uh, Bob's already thrown down the challenge and said it can't be 2050. Um, <laughs> we know by the 2006 study by the Wellesley Centers for Women that three or more women on a board is where you start to feel where women feel like they have a critical mass and can really make an impact. So there should be more numbers, not just the token one that this commenter said to Shirley's article. So how do we get there? Good question. Well, you know, in 2010, Stephanie and I said, we're going to give ourselves 10 years and then we're going to be done. <laughs> and in 2017 rolled around and we got to we got to 20% in the Fortune 1000 and we started looking at the Russell 3000 and last year we hit that too in the Russell 3000. Now these are averages. It's not every company, but the on average. Um, and then we decided, okay, we're not done here. So we hired a new CEO. She actually is in L.A., um, Betsy Berkemer-Crader. And we are going to, um, at the end of this year, because we have a big celebratory year, like the Women's Right to Vote, and, 20, and our 10th anniversary, we're actually going to announce a new goal and All probably right. a new name. Okay. <laughs> and we, um, there's a lot of talk about parity. One of the things we talk about is gender balance. Um, and you're going to be seeing new information from us because we are very determined to keep this going. Oh, well, breaking news. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> what would you have to add to that, Nancy? Anything about just looking forward on these numbers? Well, first of all, do you know the saying about women on boards? Uh, one is invisible. Two are conspiratorial, uh, and three is neutral. So to your point, three is, you know, but we have to look more at percentages. But but that's a general rule of thumb. Um, and, you know, we're, we're all supporting continuing this effort. Uh, we can't wait until 2050 to get parity. Uh, we certainly support 2020's efforts or whatever you're going to call yourselves now. <laughs> Stay 2030, <laughs> I don't know. Um, and the Boston Club continues to monitor, to um, get out there, to try to place more women on boards. Um, right now, we're you know we're at 24% of women in the top 100 um, public companies in Massachusetts. You know, it's up from 21%. Still, you know, the good news is it's up from 21 to 24. The bad news is it's 24. Yeah. So we have a lot of work left to do. And as liberal mm. as we are in this state, we're still in the middle. When we right. look at states yes. that have achieved the 20 percent mark, we're still in the middle. All right. By the luck of the draw, you get the last word, male, um, Bob <laughs> Rivers. But I'll let you speak for your daughter. So we'll think of you that way. Yeah, sure, sure, <laughs> so sure. would you speak to this? <laughs> sure. I mean, I, I, I hope we make much faster progress than we've made. And, and I'm afraid that legislation may have to drive it. I do think if you want to call it a rule of three minimum, that is a great place to start. It's how we've constructed our board. We have three women on our board. That is n still three short of what we need to have. We have a 12-member board. We're shooting for six. We do have um, four people of color uh, on our board. But again, we don't have the representation in terms of certain ethnicities mm -hmm. that we'd like. So I think being intentional at the end of the day, this is a very simple thing to do. I recognize it's not easy. But unless you set a goal and really go for it, you're never going to get there. Well, I think that's a good place to end. And I thank you all for joining me. Thank you. Thank you, Callie. Thank you, Callie. Mally G. Rowe is the co-founder and the vice chair of 2020 Women on Boards, a global education and advocacy campaign urging corporations to meet or exceed 20% women directors on their boards by the year 2020. Nancy Nager is the vice president and president-elect of the Boston Club, an organization invested in elevating women in all areas of the business world. And Bob Rivers is the CEO of Eastern Bank. Coming up, 
Even if you're not a hip-hop fan, you may know the names Queen Latifah, Missy Elliott, and Nicki Minaj, women whose hip-hop songs catapulted them from the rap genre to pop culture personalities. But there were many women who laid the pathway for their success whose contributions in hip-hop have been diminished or erased. Not anymore. God Save the Queens, the essential history of women in hip-hop, captures it all. It's our March selection for Bookmark, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. Last year, Forbes' list of highest-earning hip-hop artists listed 20 names, 19 men, and only one woman, Cardi B. It's symbolic of the way that female MCs and rappers, despite their talent and innovation, have struggled to be center stage in one of music's most dynamic genres, even though they help bring hip-hop to the world. But music journalist Kathy Yondaly always knew the stories, and now she's documented the striving and the struggle of these artists in her new book, God Save the Queens, The Essential History of Women in Hip-Hop. It's our March selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. And author Kathy Yondaly joins me now from the NPR studios in New York. Hello, Kathy. Hello. I'm so happy to have you. Thanks for having me. Let's just jump right in. Now, you describe yourself as a hip-hop journalist, and the book is really a culmination of a lot of the work you've done throughout your career. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I've been working within hip-hop for over 20 years now, and um, I kind of traveled, you know, kind of run the gamut of um, different jobs that were specific, I guess, to the music industry. Um, Even prior to my work in journalism, I worked at a record store in the uh, mid-90s and then moved into working at major labels, radio companies, just doing anything I could just for the love of music. And, you know, the constant for me was writing. Covering women in hip-hop was always kind of my beat. So after four decades of there being no real documented text about the history, I felt like it was very necessary to do it. And that's why I wrote God Save the Queens. Now, you know, Kathy, I just did a kind of cursory search and found one book that was described as a study of women and their roles in hip-hop. And I think there was another one by a woman who typically writes YA young adult novels. But yours, as you just said, is the only one that sort of does a long look back up to this point of many of the names people may know and others they do not know. Why do you think it is that this has been territory that hasn't been covered more in depth? I think it's a lot of things. I mean, obviously, hip-hop has kind of struggled with mainstream acceptance from from the moment it reached a level that, you know, left just specific to uh, the South Bronx. But I think because of that and that uphill battle for you know, legitimacy and respect. So many of uh, the people in hip hop who, you know, fought for the greater good were always just men, essentially. The coverage was always just, you know, geared towards men. And 
to put women into the mix, and that was something that I, I covered in God Save the Queens, was the idea that there were so many men who were fighting for that legitimacy and that validation and that respect that when women came in, they were perceived more as a liability than an asset. And then above all, you know, sometimes it's a combination of sexism and racism and, and various things that don't allow specifically within this book, The History of Women in Hip Hop, we're talking about black women, essentially, mm -hmm. you know, and I feel like there was just not enough respect that was being paid. And it is a combination of various factors. But I'm glad that at this point in time, we're finally getting to this place of proper recognition. And I should say that you are not a black woman writing I'm this not. book. So you have a sort of your long history and in, in hip hop has allowed you to observe what's been happening with black women and talk to a lot of them as as you have covered them uh, during the years. Let me start right off with us saying where you early on um, lay out the history of, of women in hip hop. And you mentioned um, Roxanne Shante yes. and how the story of Roxanne is one that uh, becomes repeated over and over. She's really good. She's out there. And then she just can't get the traction for some of the reasons you just outlined. First, let's listen to Roxanne's Revenge. This is Roxanne Shante. He said, you call yourself an MC. I said, this is true. He said, explain to me really what MCs must do. I said, listen very close, because I don't say this every day. My name is Roxanne, and they call me Shante. But every time that I say a rhyme, I just like a this it is something your MC can't miss. Okay, now, I wanted to play that because the story that you told about her was just amazing, and it really set us up for the rest of the book in terms of where these women have been in the industry. Explain, please. So the whole history behind Roxanne's Revenge, you know, it was a response record to UTFO's Roxanne Roxanne. Essentially, UTFO were, you know, a rising hip-hop group. And here comes this little teenager in braces named, uh, named Shantae. And she said, well, I could battle them. Now, Shantae had already had this reputation of being a neighborhood battler, one of the best, in fact, even for just being a, a child. So they cut this record, Roxanne's Revenge, where Shantae assumes the title of Roxanne. And she, you know, personifies this woman because in the original Roxanne, Roxanne, they're trying to, like, kind of make fun of this. It's, it's kind of the equivalent of, like, catcalling, you know, when, exactly. when a girl's, like, walking down the street and they're like, pss, pss, and she doesn't say anything. And they're like, all right, well, forget about you. You know what I mean? That was essentially the embodiment of that track. So with Roxanne's Revenge, she's basically attacking them all, Kangle Kid, all the guys in UTFO, and saying, you know, no, there's a reason why I don't want to respond to you. There's a reason why I'm not attracted to you. And... You know, Mr. Magic premiered on Rap Attack, and it just—she skyrocketed from there. But what I took away from it is after that, I mean, she had all this talent. Mm -hmm. uh, she was in the moment. She put herself forward, and then she just could not get traction after that because there seems to be jealousy. She Was, was she a threat? Whatever. But couldn't get in like the guys. The guys went on, but she, she could not. Well, I think there was a level of comfort to which her success— you know, there was there was a ceiling to it in the in the eyes of the men, right? You can become successful, but you couldn't become too successful. It seems symbolic to me of what happened with women as you continue to portray their stories through this book. They make yeah, a splash. She was boxed out, right? Exactly. So hip hop for people who don't know it, it started in the seventies. They were progressing on. Women like Roxanne are trying to make their mark, and then we come to a point what you describe as sort of the golden age around the nineties, where there are a lot of women who seem to be doing it. 
And then um, sexism in a different form takes place. I want you to read from your book because you talk about how the industry began to uh, put the women in two different camps. They were either Nubian goddesses or they were sex kittens. Mm -hmm. What the end of the Golden Age did was create an even greater gender divide, since now it rang abundantly clear that women had an entirely different duty within hip-hop. Certainly, the mega-success of Kim and Foxy created more options and openings for skilled female rappers, but at labels big and small, Kim and Foxy would become the go-to archetypes of how to revive even female legends' careers. The message was simple. Women rappers now had to be sexy, the dirtier the better. The Nubian goddess was dropping in demand. This moment would forever change hip-hop as we knew it, a business model that was on the verge of blowing up, even bigger than any player or observer ever fathomed. And it was only the beginning. That's my guest, Kathy Yondaly, a reading from her book, God Save the Queens. It's our March selection for Bookmark, the Under the Radar Book Club. And that's God Save the Queens, the Essential History of Women in Hip-Hop. So, Kathy, I wanted you to to really make that clear because I didn't really have a sense of that. I mean, I, you could probably, if you were observant, you could see that was happening as a consumer. But inside the industry, it didn't, I mean, you know, for us, it, we didn't understand that that was happening. So I want to play something from Little Kim, who is one of the people who was a proponent of these explicit lyrics. We're not about to hear explicit. But you get a sense of the difference in her style. Um, and this is from a cut called Not Tonight. Sit it, send it off with the eight fifty. Y'all missing the buck with the f- bump, biggie in the truck, in the buck to my double. B- Let me see you do the bank head if you're rich. It's the rap, May West, the QB. And I got all my sisters the men. Now, I, uh, Kathy, I wanted you to compare. I wanted to compare and contrast that with later on, uh, Queen Latifah, along with Moni Love, do a what becomes a ladies' anthem, and they're more in the group known as the Nubian goddesses, the people who were doing sort of conscious lyrics. So let's let's take a listen first, and I'll let you respond on the other side. This is Queen Latifah, "Ladies First, featuring Moni Love. We are the ones to give birth to the new generation of prophets, because it's ladies. I break into a lyrical freestyle. Cause they see a woman standing up on her own too Sloppy slouching is something I won't do Some think that we can't flow, can't flow. Stereotypes they got to, go. got to go I'ma mess around and flip the scene into reverse With what? With a little touch of ladies first Kathy, I thought... Um that w- Those were two really good examples of what happened. And what you say in your book, as we progress through the time leading up to today, is that this divide, to some large degree, still exists. Absolutely. And I, I just want to make clear that the, the Nubian goddesses versus sex kitten debate was something that was actually entrenched amongst the women in hip hop, how they regarded each other. Um, it wasn't my own kind of like overarching analysis of it. Um, that was that was something that Rod Digga had informed me about, that that they looked to each other and, and made those judgment calls based upon just even the marketing or, or the type of music that was being made. Um, I think those are two excellent examples of songs. You know, Not Tonight, actually, the, the remix called Ladies' Night, which is um, what you were playing by Little Kim, uh, follows what was in 1989, Ladies First with Queen Latifah and Moni Love. And 
there were two different things happening, I feel, that led to this that I think still exists today. You know, the way music is made in, in the interest of sex positivity sometimes gets regarded as raunchy or nasty or dirty or explicit. And there are certain artists who continue along that line in the promotion of that, that sex positivity and, and sexiness. And then there's others who go in a different direction. And I think both are equally amazing for hip hop and music in general. But I do feel that there's like this split where you can't travel to the other side. And I do include a story in my book on how Rodiga, when she was wearing like a cat suit in her video, you know, for tight, suddenly everyone was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, you're a Nubian goddess. Why are you dressing like a sex kitten? And it was just one of those things where it's like that that division became so stark. And it, it's amazing how the only artist during that time period who kind of traveled down the middle in some ways was Lauren Hill. But even she was more regarded as one and not the other. Mm. That's my guest, Kathy Yondele. Um, I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Uh, she is the author of God Save the Queens, The Essential History of Women in Hip-Hop. It's our March selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. Uh, so the sexism, you know, works both ways because the industry is so much pressure on these women to fit in either one of these categories and pushing back on it. The other thing that I thought that um, I don't think I knew, um, maybe it's obvious if you look at how the genre has shaped and changed uh, with regard to women, it makes sense, is the real push for um, women in rap who are in who are in hip hop to go pop and that that was where the success was going to be for them, that they couldn't stay in their own genre, which they loved. Um, but if unless they went pop, they might not be able to reach success. And I began this conversation by saying Cardi B was the only woman on the Forbes list, and she has definitely reached out in many other ways uh, beyond, um, beyond hip-hop. So uh, explain that, if you would. Well, I think when it comes to a certain point, and, and I think about this one moment where when Nikki... Minaj released Starships, very categorically pop track, completely rejected by hip hop. And, you know, there's a story, you know, at Hot 97 Summer Jam where, um, where Rosenberg is, you know, the DJ is playing Starships and he's like, take that off. That's not real hip hop. And, you know, she ended up pulling out of Summer Jam that year. I think there was just a resistance. There was a resistance to put hip hop into the mainstream in so many different ways. But I think because once you get more towards the mainstream, women in hip-hop were thriving. You know, there was a pushback from hip-hop. And it's interesting to me because I think this is the point where we come to figure out if you're just, if you're a pop artist who's rapping or a hip-hop artist with a mainstream appeal. And that's a, mm -hmm. that's a debate that I still think we're trying to figure out. Uh, but I would regard... Cardi and Nikki, uh, Lauren, any of the art, Missy, any of the artists who achieve that mainstream success, they are hip hop artists at their core and they just happen to have mainstream appeal. Um, but to go as far as regarding them as pop artists who are rapping, you know, I look at Flo Rida or Pitbull, you know, artists like that who are more pop artists. But I think once you get to the side where you do have the the mainstream acceptance for whatever reason, you know, hip hop gets a little upset. 
Well, um, and you made the case with regard to TLC. Yes. Um, I think a lot of people would just consider them pop. They didn't. They. I don't know that I knew that they had really a hip hop, you know, history. So here's a cut from TLC with a song that most everybody knows by them, "Waterfalls." So I didn't know till I read your book, Kathy Yondely, that there was supposed to be a rap component of that. And, you know, it just got erased and, and the song became something else uh, quite successfully. But but there it was. Yeah. Left Eye. Left Eye mm-hmm. was a hip hop artist. You know, she started as a hip hop dancer. You know, she she was a rapper. She was an MC, And being in a group like TLC... You know, especially with their first album, Ooh, on the TLC tip, they cover a lot of um, interesting topics. I mean, they talk about the Tawana Brawley rape trial. They 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 really cover a lot of um, social topics and, and just political topics. And even Waterfalls, if you, you listen, I'm, Left Eyes Verse was, you know, buffed out of the radio edit. But mm. she's even T-Boz, what they're singing, they're talking about um, the AIDS epidemic. They're talking about um, police brutality. They're talking about so many different things in their music. And when TLC came out in 1992, that year was regarded as the year of the woman. But that was the same year that there was the biggest rise in sexual assaults. And, you know, TLC rose to that occasion identifying that, but then also, you know, um, expressing different um, elements of, of their own sex positivity, but also practicing safe sex and everything. And Left Eye was at the heart of that. But as soon as labels found that their R&B approach was far more marketable, far more profitable, Left Eye was slowly phased out of that narrative. And what I wanted to do in the book was really just highlight how amazing she was as an MC, because I feel like she was completely slept on, especially when they would take her her raps right out of the songs. Hmm. So, Kathy, one of the things that um, you you end your book, you know, with the question that no one can answer is like, what what does the future mm-hmm. look like? Um, but you also mentioned some some women who are seem to be staying within the genre, getting some success, like uh, Megan The Stallion. Um, I note that at the end of January, Billboard did a piece called 15 Hip Hop Artists to Watch." Once again, there's a gender divide. There are two women on that list of 15. One is called Cash Page, and the other one is Leighton Green. I don't know either of them, but I, you know, there you have it. It's sort of following what you've what you've done in your book and, and tracing the history. But yet they are there, um, and they seem to be not pop artists, but actually hip hop artists. Uh, I don't know if you know them, and and what does that say to you that at least they've been um, they're on the list of 15 to watch in the new year. It's so hard when you when you think about those lists, right? Because I've been in rooms where those lists are being generated, and the list will start out as fifteen men, 
And then it's like, wait a minute, all right, who are we going to pull off? You have to have women because somebody's going to talk. And that's literally how the conversations go. I'm not saying that's how the conversation went with Billboard. But um, I do – I've been in those rooms and I've, I've, I've heard the conversations where, you know, it becomes more of um, quota over quality. Those two artists are actually pretty pretty talented, so I'm I'm, actually, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm happy they made the list. But again, there are so many more. But then, unfortunately, mm-hmm. once the number racks up and and it doesn't lean in the favor of men, it becomes a, a list of women in hip hop. It, it's just it becomes the same song, and I just hope that we get to a point where, you know. Women in hip hop, female rappers, are just regarded as rappers, are just regarded as MCs, and and there's not some sort of, you know, descriptor at the beginning specifying that that they're part of a different categorization. Because in the end, they're all talented and could compete with the guys any day. So, Kathy, this is this is a worldwide phenomenon. I mean, maybe Americans who don't pay attention to hip hop are unaware of that. But hip hop is around the world. But it started here. It started in these urban communities in the 70s here in America. So it's an American export. Um, And I wonder, as it has been exported, are there is there a bigger understanding globally of the role of women in hip hop? That's a really good question. You know, I honestly don't know because I think the novelty of hip hop across the country, across the country, across the world, the novelty of American artists in hip hop, I should say, there's this global adoration, right? And then what the respective countries do with their love of hip hop, I think transcends gender. But when it comes to specifically the American artists, I still feel it leans in the favor of men. However, Mm. the participants in those countries, I think there's no real gender divide. Interesting. So I always ask my authors this, and that what would you like for the reader to take away? I mean, there are many things to take away from the book, I will say, as a reader. And by the way, you wrote it very well. Thank you. Um, many, many names I did not know. Others I had forgotten about. It really it's a, it's both a history and um, wonderful storytelling. So I, I do want to say that. Um, but what would you like for the readers to take away from God Save the Queens, The Essential History of Women in Hip Hop? What I would really want for the readers um, to take away from this is that while I did my best to cover four decades of um, contributions of women in hip-hop, this is by no means the wrap-up to the end of the story. The story still needs to be told because there's going to be four more decades and four more after that. So this isn't the one – this isn't one big um, combination of, of trying to list every artist in existence to say, okay, are we, we're done telling the story now. So this is this is the starting off point. So I hope that other books are written where the coverage continues and the recognition and respect continues. Well, I would say you laid the foundation for that. So I thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Kathy Yondele is the author of God Save the Queens, The Essential History of Women in Hip Hop. It's our February selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club, and it is available in bookstores and online now. That's it for this week's show. We're on the web at WGBH.org News, Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. 
Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of WGBH, produced by Francisca Monahan and engineered by Dave Goodman. Melissa Rosales is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. Thank you.